Katherine Young, a rising senior at Glenwood Springs High School, will interview Vivian Baldessari, who is the William Band Distinguished Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Washington State University. Vivian earned her PhD in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of Michigan in 2017. So she's a newbie. <laughs> Prior to her current position, she held a NASA Einstein postdoctoral fellowship at Yale University. She has participated in the Aspen Center for Physics workshop entitled Black Hole Formation, Accretion, and Outflows Through Cosmic Time, which in itself is a very interesting title. And she gave a colloquium here for her colleagues entitled Searching for Black, um, Massive Black Holes in Dwarf Galaxies. And it's that topic that we'll probably be concentrating on in this interview. So welcome to Radio Physics, and Catherine, take it away. Was there a really defined moment where you knew that you wanted to go into physics? It was um, more of a gradual transition. So when I was a high school student, I really loved my math and physics classes. So I, I knew that I wanted to major in physics, but it wasn't until the summer after my first year of college that I decided what I wanted to do, which was to, to pursue astrophysics as a career. Okay. Um, did you have a mentor in college or another time in your education? Yes. Um, one of my most influential mentors was Professor Kelly Cruz, who I worked with for um, several years when I was an undergraduate in physics at Hunter College. Um, so I, I worked with her doing astrophysics research and uh, having a um, woman role model at, as a physics professor was really um, influential for me. Um, she helped me through a lot of different career transitions and provided advice on, on science matters and other matters and um, was just a fantastic mentor. Great. <clears throat> Do you mind explaining the basis of what you study with black hole formation? I would love to. Um, so I search for black holes at the centers of small galaxies. And we know that all really big galaxies have a supermassive black hole at the center, but we don't actually know how those supermassive black holes form. And we think that um, depending on how they form, different fractions of little galaxies will end up containing a supermassive black hole. So by searching for these black holes at the centers of little galaxies, we hope to be able to say something about how those black holes form in the first place. Um, how do you go about this research in terms of equipment, and are there any limitations? Yeah, so I use a variety of different techniques to try to search for black holes at the centers of these really small galaxies. Uh, one of my, my favorite, most interesting techniques is using um, variability, which just means that we look for changes in the light output from the center of the galaxy over the course of years. So you have to take images of the same galaxy over and over again for a long period of time, and then you look for particular variations that um, are the signature 
of a black hole there at the center of the galaxy. Um, and so this is a really data-intensive process, as you might imagine, um, since you're looking for things changing over um, months or years-long timescales. But thankfully, there are some really nice telescopes that are dedicated to making these kinds of observations and um, giving the community access to all of that data. So that's one way that um, we search for these black holes. Um, other ways include looking for um, X-ray signatures or um, radio signatures, so really looking for um, different signatures across the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So what does the experimental data that you collect really tell you about such phenomena? Um, so some types of data that we collect can tell us about the masses of the black holes at the centers of galaxies. So some of the observations that we make are looking at how the gas around the center of the galaxy is moving and how fast it's moving. And by making those types of measurements, we can determine how big those black holes are. And that's also important for trying to learn about how black holes form. Um, uh, how, yeah. And with your long-term observations, how long do these sets of images go back? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so some of them go back to the 1990s, um, so quite a long time. Um, there was one really uh, revolutionary survey uh, run by the telescope um, called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is in New Mexico. And this particular survey took um, repeat images between um, around 1997, 1998, through 2008, and then we have new surveys which have picked up since then. So some objects have um, light curves, we call them, which just tell us how the light changes over time, spanning more than 20 years. So really uh, long-term data sets. Have you had any theories or conclusions changed recently based on these images and data that you get? Um, so one thing that I, I think my work has contributed to is figuring out just how many dwarf galaxies actually contain black holes. Um, so as recently as just um, 15 years ago or so, we only knew of a couple of examples of dwarf galaxies that contained um, black holes at their center. And through um, the work of um, many other excellent science, scientists and myself, we've started to find um, actually significant numbers of black holes in dwarf galaxies, which has been really exciting. Um, and something that my work has contributed to especially has been um, showing that some of the selection techniques for finding black holes that work for higher mass galaxies, so bigger galaxies like our Milky Way, don't necessarily work for these lower, lower mass, um, really small galaxies. So we need to get creative with our techniques to hunt for these black holes. Gotcha. Does the quantity of supermassive or massive black holes in dwarf differ from galaxies like ours? That's what we're trying to answer. Okay. So galaxies like ours, um, so galaxies the size of ours and, and bigger, all have a supermassive black hole at the center. And we don't know whether that's true for little galaxies. But that's, that's one of the big questions that I'm trying to answer. Okay. What are the implications of black hole formation?
So if we find that many um, dwarf galaxies contain a black hole at the center, then it tells us that um, the processes by which black holes form in the very early universe are pretty common. And we think that black holes would have started off pretty small through these really common processes in early galaxies. If on the other hand, we find that most of these small galaxies don't contain a black hole, then it tells us that black hole formation was more rare in the very early universe and a more um, kind of specialized process that requires very specific conditions that might have only occurred in, in the more the, the bigger galaxies in the early universe. Gotcha. Um, what do you find to be most fascinating, the most fascinating part of your work? I love trying to piece together the puzzle of whether a little galaxy has a black hole at its center. And one of the really fun things about this kind of work is that um, oftentimes any one signature doesn't give you a complete answer. So you need to bring together lots of different kinds of data. Um, so maybe x-ray data and also light curve data um, to really answer the question of whether a particular dwarf galaxy has a black hole at its center. So I really enjoy that aspect of piecing together the puzzle. Are you involved with any outreach programs? Yeah, so I really love um, bringing the work that I do to um, younger scientists and the community. So I try to give a lot of public lectures um, and have done um, outreach days for Girl Scouts, for example. Um, I feel really passionately about trying to um, bring science to everyone. And so I'm hoping that um, in my new role at Washington State University, I'll be able to do more of that um, now that things are opening back up. <laughs> Would you mind telling me how many dwarf galaxies you are currently monitoring and how you really find those in a whole scale of a very, very large universe? That's a great question. So our galaxy catalogs come from um, the results of many large astronomical surveys dating back decades. So there have been surveys that have looked at you know, hundreds of thousands of sources um, in the sky figured out how bright they are, how far away they are, and then tried to classify them as um, figure out how massive they are, find the dwarf galaxies, etc. Um, so the samples that I've been working at uh, are comprised of several tens of thousands of dwarf galaxies, and those are actually all relatively nearby. And by that, I mean still um, hundreds of millions of light years away, uh, but compared to the entire um, cosmic history of the universe, which is, you know, 13.8 billion years old, that's the relatively local universe. Um, so while we do have pretty big samples of tens of thousands of dwarf galaxies that we're monitoring, um, we're only looking at the relatively uh, nearby ones. And certainly as our technology improves, as we measure distances and brightnesses of, of more objects, we'll be able to expand those samples and look for black holes in dwarf galaxies that are farther away and farther back in time. And to go back really quickly, what would characterize a black hole as supermassive? That's a great question um, and has uh, kind of an involved answer. So there are kind of two different types of black holes that we observe in our universe. There are stellar mass black holes and supermassive black holes. 
So the stellar mass black holes weigh a couple of times the mass of our sun. Um, and we see those everywhere. There should be hundreds of millions of those in our own galaxy and in other galaxies. And then supermassive black holes that we find tend to be upwards of about 100,000 times the mass of our sun. So that's kind of what we think of as supermassive, the ones that live at the centers of galaxies. Um, and then in between are called intermediate mass black holes, and those are very elusive and uh, the subject of, of many astrophysical searches. Um, people are very interested in trying to find these intermediate mass black holes and determine whether they exist. Do the accretions between all of these different types of black holes differ at all? Um, so the, the larger ones will be able to... Um, accrete more because they're um, more massive, so their maximum limit is higher. Um, but every black hole has a, a maximum accretion limit or a maximum limit to how much it can eat at once that is um, related to how massive it is. So even little ones can accrete near their maximum limit, it's just that their maximum limit is much smaller than the, the bigger ones. How do black holes um, influence the galaxies that they occupy? That's a great question. Uh, we think that black holes can actually have a, a big influence on their host galaxies, especially when they're really active. So when a black hole is really active, it's consuming lots of material very rapidly. And as the material swirls towards the black hole, it heats up a lot and emits a lot of light can sometimes um, shoot off really energetic, powerful jets or launch winds throughout the galaxy. And we think that this may um, have the effect of shutting off star formation in a galaxy, so preventing more stars from forming because it's disrupting the gas that those stars would form from. So we think that um, really high levels of black hole activity may disturb star formation in a galaxy. Have you always known that you were interested in studying black holes? Um, I haven't. So uh, I've been lucky to been, have been able to study many different things through um, the, the course of my career in astronomy from being an undergraduate through, um, through today as a professor. And several of my, my first research experiences were on very different topics. So as an undergraduate, I studied um, objects called brown dwarfs, which are failed stars. So they're objects that start to form like a star, but never get hot enough to ignite hydrogen fusion. So I worked on those for a long time. I studied planetary nebulae, which are beautiful um, nebulae of gas that form when sun-like stars die. Um, and then I had a research experience studying, studying black holes as well as an undergraduate. And that was, although everything was fascinating, that was my favorite of, of my research experiences. And so when I got to graduate school, I knew that I really loved black holes and wanted to study them more. So it was um, having this variety of experiences that enabled me to discover my uh, kind of true passion in astronomy. <laughs> Uh, how has the culture or atmosphere for women in STEM and specifically physics changed, or what do you see in it? That's a great question. Um, so there have definitely been um, challenges 
being um, a woman in a relatively male-dominated field. So for example, when I was a high school student taking advanced physics, I was one of two women in my class of almost 30. Um, And I actually didn't have a woman physics professor until I got to graduate school. So having um, my my research mentor as an undergraduate was really key for me. Um, And I've been able to Uh, have really amazing women mentors throughout my career that have really helped me along the way. Um, In terms of how things are changing, I've seen, um, I think a lot of people are speaking up now about really important issues and trying to to make positive change in um, physics and astronomy departments across the country. So there's a lot of people who are working really hard, and um, that's been really inspiring to see. And, um, you know, I'm hoping to be part of that change as well and working really hard to, to make sure that physics and astronomy um, and science in general are an inclusive and, and equitable place for all, all underrepresented groups in science. Has anything in the world of astrophysics sparked your interest to research in the future? That's a great question. Um, So I am also really interested in these objects called nuclear star clusters, which are extremely, extremely dense clusters of stars that live at the centers of most small galaxies. And there's been some debate over whether these really dense star clusters could provide an environment for these intermediate mass black holes to form. And so that's something that I'm working on exploring right now and that I find really, really interesting. Will you elaborate on the overlap between the star clusters and the black holes? Yeah, so because these really dense star clusters live at the centers of small galaxies, it was once thought that maybe big galaxies have black holes and then there's a transition to small galaxies having these star clusters instead of a black hole. But we've actually found many systems that contain both, including our own Milky Way. And this has led people to speculate on sort of the relationship between these star clusters and black holes and whether they um, can influence a pre-existing black hole or form intermediate mass black holes in some of these really small galaxies. Um, and, And so I find that all really fascinating. I'm curious as to how many black holes we have in our galaxy. So we have one supermassive black hole at the center, which weighs about 4 million times the mass of our sun. And then we have lots and lots of little black holes in our galaxy because these stellar mass black holes form when really big stars die. And so every time a really big star dies, you can get... um, either one of these stellar mass black holes or another really dense object called a neutron star. So our galaxy has billions of stars in it. Many have died. We should have hundreds of millions of little black holes in our galaxy. There are some galaxies that have two supermassive black holes, and this is because galaxies merge with one another over time. And so at a certain point, you'll have kind of one big galaxy with two black holes that are heading towards merging with one another. Um, Someday, our Milky Way galaxy should merge with the Andromeda galaxy, our our nearest big neighbor, and so perhaps our black hole will merge with the black hole that is at the center of Andromeda. 
How do you measure the mass of these black holes? So we measure the mass of black holes by looking at the speeds of stuff that is moving around the black hole. So the physics there is actually pretty straightforward. Um, if you knew um, how fast the Earth was moving around the sun and how far away the Earth is from the sun, you would be able to figure out the mass of the sun. The same concept applies to black holes. So if you can find some gas or a star that is moving around the black hole and figure out how far it is away and how fast it's moving, you can figure out the mass of the black hole at the center. Um, and this is how we figured out the mass of the black hole at the center of our own galaxy. Um, astronomers have worked very hard tracking the orbits of stars at the center of our galaxy around the black hole and used those orbits to, to measure the mass at 4 million times the mass of our sun. What is the influence of all the little black holes that we have in our galaxy? So most of the little black holes in our galaxy will will never find because they're isolated by themselves. They're not eating material. They're what we call quiescent. And mm. so we'll probably never observe those. Um, there are some in our galaxy that are in binary systems with an, a star. So they're, um, they're kind of locked together and the black hole is feeding from that star. So material from the star is getting stripped off and feeding that little black hole. And so those are the ones that we've been able to identify in our own galaxy is these ones that are um, linked up with a star and accreting material from that star. So most of them we'll, we'll never know about. And there are certainly none that are close enough to our solar system to be um, a risk to us <laughs> at all. Um, but there are some in our galaxy that are that are feeding from other stars, and so those we're able to observe because um, we can see the signature of that accretion. What is the timeline for these stars paired with the black hole to be giving some of its mass and stuff like that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the star won't be depleted for probably many millions of years. So even though they're um, kind of feeding enough to give off light that we can detect, it's not as if the, the star will be gone in, in a few years. It's a much, things in astronomy happen on very, very long <laughs> time scales. <laughs> so a couple million years probably. Thank you, Vivian Baldessari, for a really interesting um, wander through the universe. I, I have learned a lot because I didn't know that there were little black holes in our galaxy. And now I know that. And it, it's, it makes it more, mm, it's a very varied universe, isn't it? There are so many things that we are learning and observing. So thank you so much, uh, the Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Washington State University, and we think that your students will be very lucky to have you as a teacher. And Catherine Young from Glenwood Springs High School, who has done a wonderful job of interviewing all by herself today. So much easier when we have more gophers, which we don't have this year. So tune in to Radio Physics on the fourth Tuesday of every month at 4.30 for more, and for more information about our Gopher program and for events at the center, 
please visit the Aspen Center for Physics website at aspenphys.org or give me a call. I'm Patty Fox. Thank you for listening, and thank you to KDNK for sponsoring Radio Physics. <laughs>